to the, the clam bake. <laughs> Yay! Welcome to the clam bake. It's a fresh take on a question all this time. If a woman is alone in the forest, will she still be undermined? It's a sorority of equality. It's a bonfire of a patriarchy. Come on, your hands, bring your moms, bring your dads. Come to the clam bake with me. It is the opposite of a sausage fest. I'm Angela Gallner. I'm Lindsay Stidham. And we want to be better feminists, damn it. Dang it. Each week, we interview different guests about their experiences, challenges, triumphs, and follies with feminism. Being a human is tough, and being a feminist is complicated. But our best resource is each other. So let's get talking. So let's get talking. Welcome, clams. Uh, Quick clam check-in. How's your clam? (sighs) My clam is, like, finally well-rested. My dog has had... um, what I like to call soupy poopies for the last couple of nights. So I've been up with her all night, just cleaning the floor and taking her out. And Aww. it's been really gross and I feel really bad for her. But uh, she let me sleep last night. So I'm feeling like I'm finally getting my legs under me again. Cool. cool. How about you? Um, my clam's good. I just want to mention Angela has a bulldog named Blind Bina and you can follow her on Instagram. And she's blind. She's blind. <laughs> and she looks like a hippo. We actually have to go to trial <laughs> next week. <laughs> <laughs> because, oh, it's a, that's a whole nother episode. But basically, she's been... She's been wronged. She's been framed. Yeah, she's a criminal. She's a criminal, but she's but we're gonna her go, time. We're going to go defend her. If I have to be there to help defend, I'll go. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we should maybe do an episode devoted to how Bina escaped a criminal sentence. I know. Hopefully she'll <laughs> escape. Yeah. LA is really serious about their dog. Their dog laws. Their dog laws. And I got a really intense letter saying that if I don't come to this hearing, that I risk the destruction of my animal. Yeah, yeah. Just like so dramatic. It is uh, overwhelmingly dramatic. And if they try and destroy her, I'm taking her and I'm going to Mexico. Yeah, if you gotta cross the border, you do it. I'm saving that poopy dog. She's the the best. She's kind of the best though. Mm -hmm. She's very like naive and she means well. She means well. well. She's just a little dumb. She's just a little dumb. Um, my clam is good. Uh, I'm just like. Oh, all of a sudden, overwhelmingly busy, but I'm not going to complain about it because some of it is like really good busy. Uh, but I'm just kind of like in this stasis of like, I just feel like I'm uh, like a little bit sleepwalking through life. Oh. I'm just like, I'm like, I'm getting through it all, but I'm just kind of like, what's happening? But in a good way. Delightful. <laughs> yeah, that's how my claim is. Cool. Yeah. All right. Yay. Yay. <laughs> good check in. Um, well, this week we've got a mighty special lady on the line from Washington, D.C. Um, I have known her since, uh, 10th grade when I thought her name was Cheryl and she (laughs) sat a couple desks in front of me, um, and we did, you know, Bible study together as kids, and she introduced me to Radiohead and watched Degrassi and My Soul Called Life and, you know, did all of that fun teenage stuff. And um, now she's living in Washington, D.C. She's working as a social worker, and uh, her name is Sarah Frizzell. Yay! Hey, guys. Welcome. Welcome, Sarah. Hi. And my cat, Ginger, is sitting here right pressed up next to me, so oh, she's yes. hanging out with us on as well. Ginger, hey, Ginger. Hey, Ging, Ging. <laughs> <laughs> now she's licking her butt as soon as she's yes. done. Oh, good. Yes, love it. She knows She knows how to how to get it. Um, did I miss anything yeah. from, I mean, I'm sure I obviously missed a lot of things, but um, anything else that we should intro about you quickly? Maybe give us, like, your official job title. Yeah, um... So I yeah I'm a social worker but my I guess my current official job title um, is supervisory behavioral health care manager. So in layman's terms or laywoman's terms, lay clams terms, yes. um, what 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 I do is I work in a primary care doctor's office like right outside of DC, right across the border into Maryland. And we are mostly serving like uninsured or uh, folks with like Medicaid and we have primary care services and I am the behavioral health specialist. So like if somebody comes in, um, sometimes it's like pretty overt, like, Oh, I'm depressed and anxious and like, panic attacks. 
or it can be that somebody's having like ongoing headaches and they can't figure out, you know, the doctors can't figure out what's going on with it, um, or there's domestic violence or there's some other issue, they refer them to see me and I meet with them, talk about what's going on. We have like a psychiatrist that partners with us and gives like recommendations and then sort of as a team we treat the person so sometimes it's like antidepressants sometimes it's therapy helping with social services um things like that and then i also supervise let me see three no four so three other people and then um some social work interns so i do kind of like quality improvements and management stuff as well That's amazing so awesome um, one of the big reasons I wanted to have you on is because, you know, we we talk about feminism and ideas and things here, but you're someone who is actually out there in the field, like walking the walk of all of the things that that we strive to do or we we idea about you're out there actually like doing the grunt work, doing the, the dirty, often thankless, full of, you know, red tape work um and not a lot of people are equipped or willing to do that kind of work and so I've just been (laughs) so impressed um over the years watching you grow and move from different you know different pocket to different pocket in within the social work world the work you're doing is so important and so hard and uh I'm just really excited to have you on talk that leads us to our first question Yes, (laughs) Uh, that we ask everybody now. Are you a feminist? Why or why not? Yes, absolutely. Um, Yeah, like I, I think it would be hard. I'm I'm sure there's maybe social workers out there who don't identify as feminists, but I I think that would be tough to do. So it certainly um, like informs all of the work that I do, not only, I guess, with, um, like the, well, in my clinic, we call them patients, patients, clients, consumers, whatever. There's a lot of different terms, but um, with the patients I work with, but also like as a supervisor, um, I, I take that into my work as well. Um, and in my personal life, my relationships, like, yeah, it's definitely, I can't imagine life not as a feminist. <laughs> Love it. <Woo-woo. laughs> Um, can you tell us in, in this current job that you're in a little bit about your day-to-day life? Um, you got a little into it briefly, but, but what are some of your biggest struggles and challenges as you move through your job? Um, so, I mean, part of it is just like navigating, um, like the social service and healthcare world is challenging. Like, um, and in a way, I guess some things are a little easier for me, so I'm not dealing too much with, like, health insurance. But, you know, that comes up time to time, and that is, like, a whole confusing mess. Um, yeah. Even if you've, like, studied it. So, yeah. And, and and I think now, I'm sure we'll talk more about this later, but in the Trump world, like, there's so much in healthcare and social services and immigration that's, like, very much up in the air. And so I get a lot of questions that I don't really have the answers to. Um, so that's a big that's a big challenge currently. Yeah, that seems um, like a yeah. cycle of frustration. Yeah, yeah, it is. So just trying to, like, reassure people, but also being like, yeah, it's normal to be anxious about losing your health uh, insurance or your health care services because, yeah, like, that's been what's in the news. That is potentially something that could happen. Um, yeah, I guess other uh, – so, yeah, I guess I can go to my day-to-day. So usually – Mondays tend to be more of, like, a meeting day, um, but, like, generally, I'll see anywhere between three to maybe eight people a day, um, and some of that is, like, meeting people for the first time and really getting, like, we call it an intake, so finding out about their health issues, their living situation, maybe if they have a history of trauma or if there's current stress going on, which pretty much everyone has some kind of stress going on. Um, and then some of it is like meeting with people I've met with before, um, see how things are going, how they're maybe responding to medication. I work with quite a few people on things like, um, like healthy nutrition and lifestyle changes and insomnia. So that I like because it balances out some of the really heavy stuff Yeah, too. yeah. Um, yeah, so it's really kind of a mix. And then in addition to that, I do like 
supervise. So I visit some of the other um, clinics where I supervise people. Um, I help my supervisor. Like one big accomplishment is we just finished making a whole bunch of new like educational materials about like what is depression or you know why why do we have this service at your primary care clinic? Why are we talking about mental health? Um, so that that type of stuff as well, like program yeah program improvement and education. Is that pretty rare to have mental health behavioral health services right? at a primary care clinic like um, that? Yeah, I think it's getting more and more common um, because, like, the studies have shown it's very effective. Mm-hmm. Like, a, it, you're, you're treating a lot more people than you could if you're just telling everybody, like, oh, you have depression, go see a psychiatrist because there's a huge lack of um, accessible mental health services for people. So the fact that, like, the primary care providers are the ones actually prescribing it works really well um if somebody has like a more severe issue like maybe like schizophrenia or severe substance abuse we do connect them somewhere else we don't really try to treat that there Mm -hmm. um but yeah I think it's getting bigger and bigger all the time like when I was working in Georgia it was just starting to be kind of a pilot um, program down there as well like partnering with one of the um, free clinics Mm -hmm. and having people come in and do mental health services there what are some of your um, biggest challenges that you're facing right now in your work? Um, so I work with people kind of from all over the world and like a variety of immigration statuses. So, you know, in the past, what are we now, seven months? When was the election? Oh, it feels like 80 years ago. Yeah, 4,000 years. <laughs> yeah. And actually before that, even as soon as sort of Trump was like out there as like a serious candidate, I was like the anxiety and fear really spiked um, in where I work, like not only with like the patients I work with, but I think with a lot of staff members as well. And a lot of the children of people I work with, there's been issues of like bullying at school and Mm. um, yeah, like name calling. And so that, that's been one is sort of dealing with that. And then I guess sort of this, message that's come across after he won is like oh like the little guy lost like you know the rich like scary mean bully one you know a lot of the people I yeah one and a lot of people I work with have had trauma where that's also been the case so it's just sort of repeating this yeah like terrible message and then trying to like stay I guess positive and dealing with my own like because I have anxiety myself mm-hmm. and Trump has not not helped that and then like the increased level of anxiety within the community is also like that's something that I've had to really work on a lot because you're right in DC you're right in the hub of of all of this craziness this constant tension and this like barrage of headline after headline after headline yeah did you see his trucks this is totally irrelevant but I'm gonna ask anyway (laughs) did you see his trucks on like (laughs) Uh, bring work back to America Day, or I don't know what he called it, but like oh, one week ago, he had like mo- basically like monster trucks on the lawn of the White House. Whoa, <laughs> no, I'm and my first thought is like, how do they because like DC driving in DC is really terrible and the streets are like narrow and par- there's a lot of parallel parking, so I'm like trying to imagine even getting those down the road, but I sadly did not. Although during um, inauguration weekend, there is this giant almost like a float um that just said like trump oh. like make america great again it was like blasting patriotic music and it crashed into multiple <laughs> things around the <laughs> <laughs> in front of the police station oh so, my god, god. <laughs> yeah, that's that, amazing that was pretty pretty great <laughs> that is amazing Holy so shit. when you say people you work with sorry to sidetrack us on trump and his monster trucks awesome and i'm like floats, i'm yeah. like slightly exaggerating they were like trash trucks and and trucks that like serve a purpose oh i had but full monster trucks in my brain in my brain that's <laughs> like too. what happened also so i'm sure that's why i said monster trucks but I'll, i will try to not <laughs> spout fake news um i'll try my damnedest uh, <laughs> um so when you say people you work with those are your clients but how about other yeah. pe- other colleagues who are doing this too? Like, have they offered anything additional to you guys to help in this t- bizarre time of doing this type of work? Um, 
Yeah, so I think a good thing that I've seen, I guess, in this um, post-Trump world is that there's so much more organizing that I've ever really, maybe if I wasn't paying attention before, but at least from what I can see, there's so much more organizing and like inner inter-organization cooperation. So I'm lucky that like the county I work in, it's like very, very blue. Um, and they're, they're, it's pretty strong, like, yeah, like that we want to support immigrants, the police, for the most part, like the police in the county I work are very much like, no, like we're not going to be asking people's immigration status. So there's been a lot of like community meetings, um, sort of, you know, talking about what different agencies are doing, mm -hmm. like how can we help? And then just two weeks ago, so the agency I work with, like there's not very many of us who are actually like directly meeting with patients. It's more um, kind of support and like funding and stuff. But like a bunch of different people at my work all attended a bystander intervention training um, oh. to sort of step in, you know, for like incidents in the community. So, yeah, I would say there are a lot more people that are interested in helping like people are just paying a lot more attention I think than they used to what did you learn at the bystander intervention um the main takeaway was that you never confront the attacker is that you always just provide support to the person who's being targeted so you would never be like hey quit you know quit using those slurs or whatever you would just like go over the person who they are trying to harass be like hey are you okay? Do you want me to come in to talk to you for a while? You don't even engage with the attacker at all. Oh, that's really um, good advice. Just, and I feel like counterintuitive, yeah. like when your adrenaline starts to rush in those moments. Yep. yep. And it was pretty funny because we had to do role plays. <laughs> and like <laughs> we had to role play being the attackers. So you have all these like really nice. Oh, like, I wish there was video. <laughs> and I, I, my, um, one of the people I supervised, she was dying because I had to be the attacker, and I was like yelling, like, "Go back to your country, <laughs> like Trump won. He's like he's rounding all you guys up. Like get out of here." Like, so oh my god! It was yeah. For those of you who don't know, Sarah, uh, <laughs> physically, what are you five two max? I'm five two. Yeah, <laughs> just teeny weeny, itsy bitsy. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Amazing. Um, how do you try to bring a feminist perspective to what you do? Um, I think that a lot of what I see, um, does like, it comes back to a lot of gender role issues, um, and like the patriarchy. So with a lot of the women I work with, um, I've seen a lot of people with like sexual abuse history or um, domestic violence, or even if it's not, like, physical abuse, just kind of, like, crappy relationships, like, very um, sexist, like, you know, that women have to stay home, they're not allowed to, like, you know, have independent lives, um, and, yeah, and just people, like, suffering as a result of that, so leading to, like, anxiety, depression, and then on the male side, I see a lot of guys who maybe come in with like high high blood pressure or headaches or um, anger issues and it 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 often is yeah like past trauma or depression or panic attacks but they don't really know who or how to talk to somebody about it like there's a lot of shame so while they would probably never go to like a mental health clinic they mm -hmm. might talk to their doctor like oh yeah I'm having these like you know heartburn or whatever and I can't figure out why and I see that because of, like, this, yeah, like, men don't talk about their problems or men need to be strong. They need to provide. Um, it's wild yeah, the way so the, 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 the trauma that, you know, the patriarchy imposes on bodies. I mean, women's is so much more apparent with, you know, the one out of four, one out of five rape statistics and the high mm -hmm. level of domestic violence. But it's it's, like, a little more sneaky in men and can be written off as other things that's so interesting that you say that mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's not yeah exactly it's not always identified as that but when I you know get to really talking to somebody in depth and I would find the men who are referred to see me show up less often um there's mm. that stigma but I'm so happy when they do um, because often they like really open up and find, and like they may only come one time mm -hmm. but it seems like it's very 
cathartic to just like, oh, okay. And like talk to somebody about this and I'm not weak or crazy, whatever. Do you think it's easier for them to open up to you because you're a woman? Do you think that has anything to do with it? Yeah, I do think that that's part of it. And um, I think the other pieces I mentioned is I'm like working with mostly immigrants, um, a lot from like Central and South America, but also um, like Ethiopia, Philippines. Oh, wow. And I think, yeah, and I think that there's sometimes this fear of like if you talk to somebody from your own community that like, you know the gossip chain will start or there's this other kind of stigma so sometimes I get to like oh I'm just talking to this random white lady at this <laughs> clinic and like, she doesn't know any of my friends like it's cool mm-hmm. yeah what's your overall what's the general demographic breakdown where you're at right now um I can't remember exactly and it 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 goes in waves because before, like, some of the parts of the Affordable Care Act came into effect, like, some of the Medicaid expansion, I had really more of a mix. I had more, like, U.S. citizens. And now with, like, expansion of Medicaid, I it tends to be more, I would say it's, like, maybe 60% or 70% from, like, Spanish-speaking countries. And then, yeah, I don't remember the percentage for the rest, but just sort of a mix, like, mm-hmm. really, like, all over the world. I've seen people from, yeah, a lot of different, a lot of different countries. What is the general is is the general feeling like stress, panic, anxiety around med, med, uh, healthcare right now? Is it is that the general? Um. Yeah. And so I'm so like where I work, it's like mostly not. I mean, it, it is fun. You know, there's some connection like government funding, but it's like what we call like a safety net clinic. So it's less dependent although you know we still depend on some like medicaid money uh-huh. um but yeah people are, are really worried especially people who have um stuff like cancer or aids you know like more expensive like more right. complicated um or or older people right um that's a big fear as well or um yeah like of losing and losing ability to see like special specialists Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. for a variety of stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. and mental health care. People are really worried about losing access to psychiatry and um, therapists. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Scary times. I yeah. mean, being on the inside, do you have any inside information like or a perspective on like where we're going and like living in D.C.? Like what is the buzz of what's going to happen um, in the weeks to come? I wish that I did. Um, I mean, and I'm like a little bit, I guess, protected to mention like the county I work in is pretty much like, all right, well, if we lose, you know, federal funding and this and this, we're still devoted to like providing health care to people mm-hmm. like that. We'll find another way to pay for it. And um, so D.C., like as a city, has kind of said the same thing. It's very interesting dynamics in D.C. because we get so much of our budget um, from the federal government, and our mayor is really, like, trying to kind of stay out of Trump's, like, stay off his bad side, I guess, Mm -hmm. because the fear is they can be like, wait a second, oh, you guys are taking all this money, you know, and just, like, pull a bunch of funding. Um, but DC has kind of said a lot of the same thing, like, okay, we're going to find other ways to try and pay for it. But I mean, that money has to come from somewhere also. So yeah, I wish that I had some good, like insider, um, information, but, but I feel like those even on the inside have no information. Like it just feels like chaos. Yeah. they do. Yeah. And I have a lot of friends who work for various, um, like government departments and yeah, it does sort of just seem like nobody knows exactly what's what's going on um yeah is there yeah is there any kind of I mean is this something you guys talk about every day because it's unavoidable or is there like any Um, buzz in in DC in general about the vote (laughs) um like in terms of like in like personal life like talking about political stuff yeah, I mean, we're sp- I mean, we'll be one week behind when we put. Oh no, this is going up this week. But we're, sp- you know, they're supposed to vote this week on the bill. But like, they keep putting it off, and like, who know? Like, who yeah. even knows if they're even going to vote? It's like insanity. Yeah, I ha- I haven't. I don't really know anybody who works like directly um, for Congress. Um, but yeah, 
last I've heard, they just like couldn't, still like couldn't get it together. Yeah. So I, yeah. 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 Well, to segue slightly, um, you, before your time in DC, you worked with, um, with groups of men who had committed acts of domestic violence. Yes. And I would love to talk with you a little bit about this experience. Can you tell us a little bit about what this position was and what you were doing? Yeah. So I went to um, get, so I have my bachelor's in social work, and then I went and got my master's in social work at the University of Minnesota. Woo-hoo. Minnesota. Minnesota. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. Um, I did my, uh, my practicum for, what was it, like nine months? Um, at the at a program in Minneapolis that is yeah for I, the majority were men who had been arrested for domestic violence incidents although there were a few who like their wives or partners were like mm, you need to go to this program or else mm-hmm. we're getting divorced or we're breaking up mm-hmm. um, so we had there was programs for the men and then they also had programs for the women who were survivors of domestic violence mm-hmm. and also for the kids. So it was a place that treats the whole family. That's really great. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of unique. I don't think there are that many places like that. What um, are... And what I did... Oh, sorry. No, go, go ahead. ahead. Keep going. <laughs> oh, oh, so what I did was sort of a mix of... Um, I worked on the phone lines like a few hours a week. So that was people calling in, usually angry, like, oh, the judge said I had to go to this. Thing. I didn't do anything, but like getting people signed up. And then I also did a like an educational group. Um, I can't remember how many different lessons we had. I want to say it was like 15 or something. This is a few years ago. So some of the details are a little blurry, but um, just talking about different things like um, gender roles and uh, how to notice when you're getting like escalated, mm-hmm. uh, power and control. Uh, yeah, so there are various topics. And then in addition to that, there was another group, and the men would have to attend both. Um, the other one was more like a kind of a traditional therapy group. So mm-hmm. talking about a variety of topics. So part of that group, um, one of the assignments was you had to tell everybody, like, basically the story of the incident that got you there, like that you were arrested for, um, and in a way that was not, like, victim-blaming, and that, um, yeah, and then get, like, feedback on that. What are some of the biggest misconceptions about men who are going through your program for, for um, this reason? So, yeah, so one of the biggest ones I found is that it was, like, these are, like, scary guys. Um, you're going to be, like, in so much danger doing it. I would get that all the time. So, like, That's where my gut, like, my gut a- was, like, oh, my God, get out of there. <laughs> No, and like, like I'm like a small person, um, pretty non-confrontational. But like, I would say for the most part, a couple exceptions. There were maybe a couple guys that were like pretty scary. I never felt like physically in danger at all ever when mm-hmm. I was there. Um, but maybe just yeah, just like creepy or whatever. But for the most part, like the guys were they were very likable. And, like, there was a lot of laughing. There, We had a lot of fun. Um, and really, when it got down to it, because I would also get to talk to the guys pretty frequently, like, one-on-one when they were starting the program, also were, like, a lot of times survivors of trauma, whether that was, like, witnessing domestic violence between their parents, witnessing, like, gang violence, like, growing up on the streets, um, like, maybe abuse that had happened to them. Um, yeah, so it's just like guys who had witnessed or experienced bad stuff and also like, you know, grew up in the patriarchy. Right. And the outcome of that was, you know, like being physically abusive to their partners. And so a lot of people, I think, really learned a lot. And we would do um, like follow up phone calls, like I think it was like several months later um to both the men and their partners and for the most part like people hadn't had more incidents that's wild Um, yeah yeah so i think that it it worked really well and one of the things i really like about the program 
is like it's just not realistic most of the time for like when someone's in an abusive situation I guess and this is kind of another myth is that it's like well just get out of there just leave well for a number of reasons that's not easy whether it's like financial or control issues so we would try to teach um, the men how to deal with when they did feel like they're starting to get angry noticing warning signs like maybe your face gets hot or you start like you know, thinking of bad names to call your partner, like how to take a break, mm-hmm. like how to go outside, mm-hmm. leave, take deep breaths, and come back. Because the reality is I think it takes, like, on the average eight times uh, for people to escape domestic violence situations. Wow. And some people never do. So it's like, all right, well, knowing that a lot of people will stay together, Let's like what and... can we do to make it less dangerous? Yeah. yeah. How long was the program? How long would the men be? Um, gosh, this again, I'm like, I'm trying to think, uh, it was something like, not quite six months. Yeah. But a substantial amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, um, and people would like, yeah, get to know each other really well and would get pretty close, like the guys in the group. So was it like, was it every single day? No, no. Um, it was one once a week going to the like educational group mm-hmm. and once a week going to the um, therapy. So that's group. like, and I think yeah, like yeah. an intensive so outpatient kind of kind, treatment yeah, equivalent ish. Like yeah, kind of. I would say maybe a little bit less intense. It was yeah. probably like, what, it was like six hours a week total. Okay, something like that. Yeah. Wow, it's crazy that just giving attention and space for that can actually change. I mean, that's like rewiring impulses in the brain, too, and just providing tools. And I mean, if we just started to actually treat people like humans instead of just putting them behind bars and and adding to their trauma, what can you do? Do you have advice for men or women who find themselves in that situation? Um, I would say, like, finding somebody that you trust that you can let know maybe what's going on. Um, You know, like, just in case things go bad and you need to get out of there. So whether it's, like, a neighbor or a friend or family, like, a lot of the power of domestic violence is people stay isolated Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how you'll often find, like, you know, people, it's sometimes, like, in the beginning, it starts to come across as, like, oh, that's so cute, he's, like, really jealous, like, he doesn't want me talking to other guys, he wants to only, like, have me be with him all the time, and people see it as romantic, mm-hmm. but really, it's, like, this insidious, like, yeah, going down a path of, yeah, isolating, um, and, like, pretty much every county like every city does have like a a hotline um you know some probably better than others but and there's also like national hotlines um where you know people can can talk to you the police like that's a hard a hard thing because a lot of people like haven't had great experience with the police but you know they can often be really helpful in Mm -hmm. domestic violence Mm -hmm. and people you know there there are legal things you can do you can get like protection orders um, and just like knowing that you're not dumb or like crazy for being in that situation. I hear that a lot. People like, uh-huh. Oh, what was I thinking? Like, I'm stupid. Like, why am I in this? Like I should know better. Right. Um, but it can happen to Anyone. anybody. Like, yeah. 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 Um, awesome. <laughs> Those are good. <laughs> Those are good suggestions. Things to know yeah. and have in your back pocket. Um, I really like, one of Angela's questions she had kind of a follow-up for that like do you have any advice for women who might be raising men oh yeah that's a good I'm trying because I do have a few friends now who are like have had or are having Boys. Um, sons mm-hmm. yeah and I know there was this good article I think it was from the New York Times that was circulating a while ago about how to raise feminist boys Mm -hmm. um i mean the big one is i think not saying stuff like when boys cry like oh be tough like don't cry like be a big strong boy like you'll get over it like letting boys and girls like feel how they're going to feel and not be shaming of Mm -hmm. that 
Um, and I think just like letting kids play with whatever they want to, like whether that's dolls or like I remember in kindergarten playing, like there were some boys who would want to play house and mm-hmm. was like, well, whatever, like, you're kids, like that's fine. Um, but yeah, I've seen, yeah, I've just seen some, I guess moms and dads being like, no, those are girl toys. Like, so not sending that message that like, oh, being nurturing or being in the home is like something to be embarrassed Mm -hmm. about and and having like movies and books with like female and male protagonists i think is another good Mm -hmm. a good thing yeah well right now you are also in addition to your other amazing work co-chairing a committee um about social workers unraveling racism and you shared this awesome document with us called 10 problematic things white social workers say about race yeah, and that just, I think, I need to check the mail, but I think that came out today. So that went in, out in a newsletter to all the licensed social workers in Maryland. So mm-hmm. I'm interested to see how that is received. I haven't gotten any nasty, like, emails or anything yet. But, <laughs> so yeah. could you tell us a little bit more about being a part of that organization and making this document? Is it a statewide thing, and who's getting this? And is this, and- is this something that we'd be allowed to share or no? Um, yeah, I think yeah. it may okay. even be, I I think so, yeah. Because um, I feel like yeah, this is a, applicable for all white this people. This is applicable it's, if you are white. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not just social workers. Yeah, this is applicable if you are of privilege, I think, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah, and we, we sort of got inspiration from, like, we read these, like, three or four different articles that were, like, eight dumb things white people say about race or like what to say instead yeah so there's a lot of good stuff like this out there and then we sort of adapted this one a little bit for social workers um but the story on the committee is so it was let's see it's in may 2015 um in baltimore was when um like the freddie gray uh incident occurred and then, like, all of the stuff afterwards in Baltimore, like, where there was, like, curfew on the street and just, like, a huge, you know, huge issue with the police department. Mm-hmm. And so um, somebody at, I think it was the head of the National Association of Social Workers, the Maryland chapter, just put, like, a little, some feelers out, like, hey, like, as social workers, this would be something we could could work on because they the office has, like, a number of committees on, like, aging or child welfare LGBT rights, but there was nothing on race, and so then just like a group of people are like, hey, yeah, this sounds cool. So we meet once a month. I sort of fell into co-chairing um, about a year ago, and yeah, we get together once a month, and we put on a couple like trainings for social workers. Um, we're gonna try to host some movie nights like next year. Um, so it's like what we've been trying to sort of start with social workers and honestly like some people have had issues with that like no we already like know all there is to know about race and we're Mm. anti-racist like let's Uh go out and like help the community they find does it does it like (laughs) hit up against egos like i'm a i'm a progressive i'm educated i work in this i there's no way i would be racist yep exactly um yeah where we feel like well let's start with like the institutions we work in and ourselves because we can do a lot within that and then will be better equipped to help the community at the same time as doing all of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what surprised you the most in the process of putting this together? Um, I'm trying to think with like putting this document together. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, one of the struggles that we really had and our group is pretty small. We have, we're like, maybe four or five like consistent members is we really struggled with how I don't even know if confrontational is the word mm-hmm. but we're like how do we make this catch eye catchy enough so that people will actually read it there's a lot of articles in this newsletter but at the same time not have people be like wow screw this I'm not reading this like they're just reverse racist you know like right. that kind of thing and have people turned off completely um, and so that's why we titled it like problematic instead of stupid or Stu- idiotic. <laughs> <laughs> or yeah. you're a racist and here's why. Yeah. I yeah, mean, it's got to yeah, be exactly. tempting to go with those clickbait headlines and be like, you got to read yep. this. Um, yeah. Can you walk us through the 10 problematic things white social workers say oh, about race? 
Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, and like I said, I think that a lot of these are pretty applicable yeah. for, you know, a lot a lot of people, not just social workers. Um, so the first one we had was All Lives Matter. Although I haven't heard too many social workers say that, but I've had a lot of heard a lot of people say that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the best, like, I guess the best answer to that that I've heard, it's sort of like if somebody is like, support breast cancer research and someone's like no but what about prostate and what about breast cancer like those matter too it's like yep they do like it's not a either or and by saying black lives matter you're we're implying that like yeah they matter and we're saying that because a lot of our institutions and a lot of things happening show that people don't really think that black lives do matter Mm -hmm. um yeah this one, uh, to be honest, this one seems the most crazy to me because I feel like saying all lives matter is like a Twitter troll tactic of when somebody tweets black lives matter, you can guarantee uh, it's usually a white man will be like, all lives yep. matter. <laughs> like this one yeah. seemed crazy to me that like you have to tell people this, but uh, yeah, yep. I'm glad it's on your yep. list. It's, it's awesome. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Um, the next one is I don't see color. Yeah, so I think people say that, like, meaning it to be like, oh, I don't see you as black. I just see you as my friend or, like. A lot of people say this on the current season of The Bachelorette. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Just to fill people in. Just Just to fill people in, in case you didn't know, America has their first black bachelorette. She's awesome. Rachel Lindsay. And I cannot tell you how many people. I know, double first name, but she's got Lindsay in there, so it's all good. But, like, I cannot tell you how many people that she's dated who are like, I don't see color. Or, like, because she asks people too she was like have you ever dated a black girl because most of the guys she's dating are white and then she's like have you ever brought a black girl home and like so many dudes are like i don't see color (laughs) and you're like not okay so give us the response to that please please i just i just had to give us the cultural context from (laughs) from a bachelorette addict yeah that's perfect so if i were to like be a consultant to the bachelorette Yeah, slash dating consultant. Um, Yeah, dating like anti-racist consultant. Um, That's like I, I, I think it's it's offensive because it's like saying like, well, I don't see color, so I don't think like you experience any prejudice or like you don't have a culture or like I've heard other things too that it's like, well, I don't see color because like not having color that's default, like that's normal, like you're just like a white person, like yeah, like. It's not. It makes it seem like color is bad. Like, yeah, like exactly. Why? Why? Yeah, yeah. Because default yeah. white. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Anyway, dudes on the Bachelorette, and the other Get amazing, the amazing thing is that's usually followed by, "No, I've never dated a black woman, nor have I brought one home." And it's like, yeah, no joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. Anyway, give us number um, three. Yeah, number three, if anyone works hard, they will get ahead. Um, And, yeah, that one I actually have heard some people, like, in the social services say sort of like, oh, that person's just, you know, like, they just need to work hard. They'll be fine. Like, this is the land of opportunity, blah, blah. Um, And that's kind of ignoring, like, the structural inequality that makes it difficult for people of color to get ahead. I'm thinking about this one especially because I've I finally went yesterday for the first time to the new Smithsonian, the African long title, the African American History and Culture Museum mm-hmm. here in DC. And oh man, like if you ever amazing. get the chance. It's yeah, and we were there like six hours and made it through maybe half. Like it's a Whoa. Yeah, it's a lot and I and the way that it's set up I'm gonna go on a little tangent here is so you actually it's just I think it's like six floors but you start in the basement so you take the elevator down and it's like really dark and sort of crowded and it starts like in the 1400s and it goes through the history of slavery wow um yeah and it's it's yeah it's pretty intense and then from there you go up a floor and then it's talking about like Jim Crow, um, like KKK lynchings, and then from there you go up the uh, southern floor, and it's talking more about like 
from 1968 to current. And that was like the most like positive part. They yeah, like, oh, so Oprah. far this is pretty dark. <laughs> yeah, and Obama. Um, but they also, you know, talk about like Black Lives Matter and um, police brutality, drug war and stuff like that. And then I guess we didn't get to the like happier, other happier part of the museum, which is like sports and music and stuff. So maybe next time. Next time. But oh. I, <laughs> yeah, so I guess my, my point in bringing that up is that like if you look at the history of this country, like it's so clear it's been built in, yeah, to like the structure of, yeah, our constitution even, and like even more modern laws. But like, yeah, it's not set up for people of color to thrive and get ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like thinking about that the fact that Trump went <laughs> to the museum, and I think he went with Ben Carson. Oh, Actually, God. like, well, gotta bring my one black friend. My one black <laughs> friend. <laughs> like, I just can't. I can't have it, like, I would have loved to know what was, like, Someone needs to make a sketch of that interaction. <laughs> Did they eat ice cream after and what flavor? Ugh. I'm just going to put yeah. in the inappropriate racist humor during this. <laughs> <laughs> two scoops or one? Man. He yeah. got two scoops that yeah. day because he worked on his um, racial uh, acknowledging race- racism. <laughs> yep. Yep, learning about Frederick Douglass. When he says, like, he's getting more and more, he's, like, doing more and more all the time. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. What a leader. Yeah, what a leader. Um. So, yeah. So, like, structurally, there's a lot of inequality. And things are have not historically and still are not built for people of color to get ahead mm-hmm. or even be able to, like, yeah, succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one I have is we just need to trust and respect each other. Like, oh, we're all human beings. We just love, it comes back to love. Like, yeah, that's, that's true. Like on an individual basis that like respect and trust goes a long way. Um, but there's like been a lot of harm towards communities of color. So it's like for white people to be like, oh, you just need to like trust and respect us. Like, mm. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, let's see. You, in parentheses, people of color just need to let go of the past. Um, yeah, like, well, I didn't own slaves. They're like, you guys, you know, that was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the main thing for that is that there is still a lot of white privilege and oppression that's still going on now. And even if there wasn't, like, to ignore the centuries and centuries of like structural racism is yeah it's like ignoring history it doesn't mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense mm-hmm. um the next one was my personal favorite the i'm a christian slash liberal slash non-trump voter slash social worker so i can't be racist and yeah that one if maybe not said quite in those words like the sentiment of that mm-hmm. i don't know if, about you guys in la but i think there are a lot there are a lot of people feel like that. Yeah. Um, like I'm not one of those I'm not one of those. People. Yeah. 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 Or like I'm not a southerner, so like this... I don't have a Confederate flag in my yard. But interestingly enough, like I before this election, like I don't know that I would have so openly acknowledged my inherent racism. And then it's like when the entire country is faced with like, you know, th- we really bubbled over a pot with this election, and now <laughs> people feel like it's okay to be openly racist. So um, mm-hmm. I think it definitely is making a lot of people hopefully face their inherent racism. Like, I know yeah. I am inherently racist because of how, just because of circumstances of how I grew up. It's like, you know, we're all, we are all influenced by our circumstances, and to not acknowledge it and talk about it now like if there was ever a time to acknowledge and talk about it it would be now for us to be like yep. if we want to move forward we gotta get the the ugly trash out in the open it's already out there so now we got to work on yep. it yeah 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 exactly yeah there's this little picture going around social media that i've seen a few places recently and if you just google like white supremacy overt and covert and it has like this little pyramid and at the top they have overt white supremacy socially unacceptable so under that they have stuff like 
racist jokes, KKK, lynching, the N word. Mm -hmm. And then the much bigger part of the triangle is underneath that. So it's covert white supremacy, things considered socially acceptable. So some of it is the stuff we've talked about, like, oh, I don't see color, um, white savior complex, police brutality, um, believing we're post-racial. You know, we had Obama, we elected a black president, like, (laughs) it's done. Um, Yeah, so that, I I think, is a helpful way to think about it. Like, yeah, like, there's probably in our everyday lives, we're not encountering that many, I don't know, maybe some of us are, but, like, that many people who are going to be, like, wearing a KKK hood. Mm -hmm. But some of this other stuff, like, yeah, even in, like, white liberal circles, like, a lot of this stuff goes on. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um... Let's see, what number? We're on number, oh, number seven. So I'm offended that you see me slash what I said as racist. Yeah, so people getting offended. And I think it's, we should be able to take it as a learning experience. And I think, like, thinking about it like I would about feminism, like, it's the same thing. People are like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you think what I said was sexist. Like, take it as a chance to be like, oh, I didn't realize that it was. Okay, like, I'll keep that in mind. I'm interested in learning more about that. Mm Mm-hmm that ego yep um so number eight and number nine are kind of similar so eight is i can relate to the racism you've experienced because i've had a similar thing happen to me so it might be like as a white person you've experienced maybe prejudice or just like discrimination by a person of color but it's not racism because there's not the power behind it right Um, And then I've experienced discrimination of a different kind. So that's the same as structural racism. And I've been in like trainings with other social workers. And this one definitely comes up. People like, yeah, but I'm a woman. Right. So I know what this is like. And how do you respond to that? um, And and the way I've seen like people respond to that successfully is kind of like, yeah, like you've experienced sexism. Yeah. Um, Yeah. is a different is than racism. So you may have like this man may have had like privilege over you as um, a male, but you still have more. You have white privilege, right. even though you're a woman. Right. Yeah. And then the last one is don't bring up race or racism. That's divisive. So that's like talking about like maybe bringing it up like at your work or with friends um and so it can silence the voices of people of color or people trying to make changes mm-hmm. um like it's it's important to talk about it mm-hmm. so. this is such a great list and it's put in really like clear simple language it is i do have to acknowledge mm-hmm. we're three white ladies yeah talking ladies about here. racism um which to be totally honest, still makes me borderline uncomfortable. But like I just said, like, oh, yeah. um, I feel like unless like now's our chance to face the ugly underbelly of racist America because it is out in the open. So now's the opportunity. But I just wanted to follow up with like, what is the plan to like implement this behavior in your work? And like, what did you guys hope to achieve by making this document? Which is it's awesome. I'm and I'm glad we took the time to like like do a deep dive in it even though it made me a little uncomfortable (laughs) yeah no I mean I definitely like there's some of these I'm like oh yeah I've I've thought that or dealt with that yeah like I think Mm -hmm. pretty much all white people have thought or said some of this stuff before so um yeah so I think one thing that we're hoping is that people can start to have conversations within their organization um like, just sort of looking at, and it comes back to power a lot. Like, well, who has the power in the organization? Like, who's on your board of directors? Is it all white people? Um, um, one training I went to, too, recently that was really challenging is even in some of the words, like, kind of the social worky jargony words, like, empowering and stuff can be like, well, is it my job to actually, like, empower somebody? Or is it my job to help somebody see, like, oh, they do actually have, you know, this power like they have this community you know it's it it gets into this kind of like white savory thing like oh yeah. I'm here to like yeah um so like at the organization I work at I'm lucky in that they've been pretty receptive and supportive of me like working on this stuff and we have we're we're what we're trying to do is get more input from people within the organization not just people on top 
because like some of my coworkers, like yeah, they like may have like issues with um, like you know somebody in their family is in prison or like a recent immigrant, you know, like and so hearing the from yeah, not just people in power, but like the people within the organization on various levels. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's really hard to implement this stuff. Like, yeah, yeah exactly. An article is great, but you, they, yeah, I don't everyone have has a... to take it upon themselves to allow themselves to check check themselves. Yeah, check yourself. Yeah. And there's something about like repetition. Like, apparently, it takes people like five to ten times of like hearing something before it's even in their subconscious. So it, you mm-hmm. know, but like seeing it written down, I think like is really productive of yeah. seeing it like right in front of your face, and you're like. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, maybe easier to read than easier to have someone t- tell it to you. You know, it's a more reflective, like less aggressive experience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd love to end on something super positive. Do you have a um, positive or inspiring story you'd like to share with us about your work? Oh, let me think. I that's a funny thing because we were like trying to like think about like the negative rights. I'm like, oh, this is a stressful thing going on. But I I get to hear success stories a lot, or sometimes I don't, just because they come once and they're like feeling really bad, and then later feeling great, so I don't see them anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but let me think. Yeah. So I um, so when I worked in Georgia for a while, um, I was leading. I worked at like a mental health clinic and I would lead a women's like kind of like trauma and depression, like support group. And I, I, I love doing groups because I love seeing like the relationships people build like within group members. Mm-hmm. And a big part of that group was like working on helping people with like self-esteem. And it was interesting because it was a, a quite the diverse mix of the group in Georgia. So we had a lot of like African-American women, women, but also like a lot of like rural white women. So like definitely large variety of like political or religious beliefs, um, which on occasion there would be some conflict. But uh, the main thing that people seemed to be able to relate on was the idea that it was really, really hard to say no. Mm. But like as women, like, all right, I got to clean up everybody's mess. I got to, like, take care of everybody else, even if my own, like, health is super suffering for Mm -hmm. it. And there was one woman in the group who had been, yeah, she was, like, I think in her 50s or maybe 60s and dealing with that her whole life and it's really having an impact on her mental health. And, like, over time, we helped her, like, with some different situations she was going through with family members and how to say no. And then it had been a little while since I had seen her and she was at, the clinic seeing someone else and they're like oh my gosh like you look great you look happy Mm. uh you know what's going on and they and the nurse asked her like oh what are you doing she's like well my my women and my women's group taught me how to say no (gasps) (laughs) yeah so that's that's one of my i like one of my favorite that's so awesome the power of no the power (laughs) of no yeah yeah i love it um Additionally, do you have any tips or tricks of how to kind of implement um, feminism into everyday life? Hmm. Um, let me think here. Well, I guess that w- I would kind of expand that, too, to, like, don't feel like you do have to fix everything yourself or be the, like, one fixing all of your, like, family members or your friends or your whatever, your work issues, like, ask for help, get other people to help with it. Like, don't feel like you always have to be the one, like, planning a birthday party or remembering to, like, buy birthday cards or, like, organizing the potluck. Like, that's fine to do that stuff, but don't feel like by default, I guess, as a female that you have to do it. Right. Um, yeah, so that would be that would be one. Um, yeah, not, feel, not having to feel like superwoman all the time because I think that can be a temptation with feminism like oh, I can do everything but sometimes it's like asking for help and like yeah. not being superwoman that helps you survive oh <laughs> uh, yes yeah, yes definitely this has been awesome thank you so thank much thank you so for... much for your time yeah. Sarah cool. and thanks your, for having me your incredible work I mean it, you're just 
you're just doing the really really hard shit and it's and it's awesome and it's it's really inspiring yeah and you're helping people keep people alive no big deal yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> helping keep people sane out there in the world it's awesome we love you. We love you. Thanks for being here. Um, thanks for tuning in, Clams. Uh, you can reach out to us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We're on all the social medias. Let us know how we're doing. Uh, questions, comments, concerns, we'd love to hear from you. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Leave us a review. Thanks for listening, Clams. Um, see you next week. Welcome to the Clam Bake. It's the opposite of a sausage fest. Just a couple of vaginas talking. Hey guys, what's going on? My name is Joe. I'm supposed to do a little promo for my show, but I don't want to do one. So uh, if you've lived a perfect life, if you know exactly who or what God is, and if you know exactly how to define spirituality, don't listen to my show, Choose Your Own Religion. If you're not interested in hearing comedians talking about their own religious background and making up new religions, for God's sake, don't go to chooseyourownreligion.com and don't find me on iTunes and Stitcher. Choose Your Own Religion. Hard pass every Sunday. I love you. And I hope you never tune in. What's a creative podcast network?